Section Zero of Canada, The Emperor of the North. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C. Canada, The Empire of the North by Agnes C. Laud. Preface. To recreate the shadowy figures of the heroic past, to clothe the dead once more in flesh and blood, to set the puppets of the play in life's great dramas again upon the stage of action, frankly, this may not be formal history, but it is what makes the past more real to the present day. Pictures of men and women, of moving throngs and heroic episodes, stick faster in the mind than lists of governors and arguments on treaties. Such pictures may not be history, but they breathe life into the skeletons of the past. Canada's past is more dramatic than any romance ever penned. The story of that past has been told many times and in many volumes, with far digressions on Louisiana and New England and the kingcraft of Europe. The trouble is, the story has not been told in one volume. Too much has been attempted. To include the story of New England wars and Louisiana's pioneer days, the story of Canada itself has either cramped or crowded. To the Eastern writer, Canada's history has been the record of French and English conflict. To him, there has been practically no Canada west of the Great Lakes. And in order to tell the intrigue, of European tricksters, very often the writer has been compelled to exclude the story of the Canadian people, meaning by people the breadwinners, the toilers, rather than the governing classes. Similarly, to the Western writer, Canada meant the Hudson's Bay Company. As for the Pacific Coast, it has been almost ignored in any story of Canada. Needless to say, a complete history of a country as vast as Canada, whose past in every section fairly teems with action, could not be crowded into one volume. To give even the story of Canada's most prominent episodes and actors is a matter of rigidly excluding the extraneous. All that has been attempted here in such a story. Story, not history, of the romance and adventure in Canada's nation-building as will give the casual reader knowledge of the country's past and how that past led along a trail of great heroism to the destiny of a northern empire. This volume is in no sense formal history. This will be found in it no such list of governors with dates appended, of treaties with articles running to the fours and eights and tens, of battles grouped with dates, as have made Canadian history a nightmare to children. It is only such a story as boys and girls may read, or the hurried businessmen on the train who want to know what was doing in the past, and is mainly a story of men and women and things doing. I have not given at the end of each chapter the list of authorities customary in formal history, at the same time, it is hardly necessary to say I have dug most rigorously down to original sources for facts and of secondary authorities, from Peter Boucher, his book, 
to modern reprints of Champlain and Lescarbot, there is not any I have not consulted more or less. Especially I am indebted to the Documentary History of New York, 16 volumes, bearing on early border wars, to documents Relaf and Le Nouveau, France, Quebec, to the Canadian Archives since 1866, to the special historical issues of each of the eastern provinces, and to the monumental works of Dr. Kingsford. Nearly all the places described are from frequent visits or from living on the spot. Introduction The 20th century belongs to Canada. The prediction of Sir Wilfrid Laurier, Premier of the Dominion, seems likely to have bigger fulfillment than Canadians themselves realize. What does it mean? Canada stands at the same place in world history as England stood in the golden age of Queen Elizabeth, on the threshold of her future as a great nation. Her population is the same, about 7 million. Her mental attitude is similar, that of a great awakening, a conscientious of new strength, an exuberance of energy biting on the bit to run the race, mellowed memory of hard-won battles against tremendous odds in the past. For the future, a golden vision opening on vistas too far to follow. They dreamed pretty big in the days of Queen Elizabeth, but they didn't dream big enough for what was to come, and they are dreaming pretty big up in Canada today, but it is hard to forecast the future when a nation the size of all of Europe is setting out on the career of her world history. To put it differently, Canada's position is very much the same today as the United States a century ago. Her population is about 7 million. The population of the United States was 7 million in 1810. One was a strip of isolated settlements north and south along the Atlantic seaboard, the other a string of provinces east and west along the waterways that ramify from the St. Lawrence. Both possessed and were flanked by vast, unexploited territory the size of Russia. The United States by Louisiana, Canada by the Great Northwest. What the Civil War did for the United States, Confederation did for the Canadian provinces, welded them into a nation. The parallel need not be carried farther. If the same development follows Confederation in Canada, as followed the Civil War in the United States, the 20th century will witness the birth and growth of a world power. To no one has the future opening before Canada come at a greater surprise than to Canadians themselves. A few years ago, such a claim as the Premier would have been regarded as the effusions of the after-dinner speaker. While Canadian politicians were hoping for the honour of being accorded colonial place in the English Parliament, they suddenly awakened to find themselves a nation. They suddenly realised that history, and big history too, was in the making. Instead of Canada being dependent upon the Empire, the Empire's most far-seeing statesmen were looking to Canada for the strength of the British Empire. No longer is there a desire among Canadians for a place in the Parliament at Westminster. With a new empire 
of their own to develop equal in size to the whole of europe canadian public men realize they have enough to do without taking a hand in european affairs as the different canadian provinces came into confederation they were like beads on a string a thousand miles apart first were the marine provinces with western bounds touching the eastern bounds of quebec but in reality with the settlements of new brunswick and nova scotia and prince edward island separated from the settlements of quebec by a thousand miles of untracked forest only the ottawa river separated quebec from ontario but one province was french the other english aliens to each other in religion language and customs a thousand miles of rock-bound winter-bound wastes lay between ontario and the scattered settlement of red river in manitoba not an interest was in common between the little province in the middle west and her sisters to the east then prairie land came for a thousand miles and mountains for six hundred miles before reaching the pacific province of british columbia more completely cut off from the other parts of canada than from mexico or panama in fact it would have been easier for british columbia to trade with mexico and panama than the rest of canada to bind these far separated patches of settlement oases in a desert of wilds into a nation was the object of the union known as confederation but a nation can live only as trades what it draws from the soil naturally isolated provinces look for trade to the united states just cross an invisible boundary it seemed absurd that the canadian provinces should try to trade with each other a thousand miles apart rather than with the united states a stone's throw from the door of each province but the united states erected a tariff wall that canada could not climb the struggling dominion was thrown solely on herself and set about the giant task of linking the provinces together building railroads from atlantic to pacific canals to from tidewater to the great lakes in actual cash this cost canada four hundred million dollars not counting land grants and private subscriptions for stock which would bring up the cost of binding the provinces together to a billion this was a staggering burden for a country with smaller population than greater new york a burden as big as japan and russia soon for their war but like war expenditure was a fight for national existence without railroads and canals the provinces could not have been bound together into a nation these were canada's pioneer days when she was spending more than she was earning when she was bound herself down to grinding poverty and big risks and hard tasks it was a long pull and a hard pull but it was a pull altogether that was canada's seed time this is her harvest that was her night work when she toiled when other nations slept now is the awakening when the world sees what she was doing railroad men farmer miner manufacturer all of the same struggle the big outlay of labor and money at first the big risk with no profit and the long period of waiting canada was laying her foundations of yesterday for the superstructure of prosperity today and tomorrow the new empire 
when one surveys the country as a whole the facts are so big they are be bewildering in the first place the area of the dominion is within a few thousand miles of as large as all of europe to be more specific you could spread the surface of italy and spain and turkey and greece and austria over eastern canada and you would still have an area uncovered in the east alone bigger than the german empire england spread flat on the surface of eastern canada would just serve to cover the maritime provinces nicely leaving uncovered quebec which was a third bigger than germany ontario which is bigger than france and labrador ungava which is about the size of austria in the west you could spread the british isles out flat and you would not cover manitoba with their new boundaries extending to hudson's bay it would take a country the size of france to cover the province of saskatchewan a country larger than germany to cover alberta two countries the size of germany to cover british columbia and the yukon and there would still be left uncovered the northern half of the west an area the size of european russia no old world monarch from william the conqueror to napoleon could boast such a realm people are fond of tracing ancestry back to feudal barons in the middle ages what feudal baron of the middle ages or lord of the outer marches was heir to such heritage as canada may claim think of it combine all the feudary domains of the rhine and the danube and you have not so vast an estate as a single western province or gather up all the estates of england's midland counties and eastern shires and borderlands and you have not enough to fill one of canada's inland seas lake superior if there was a population in eastern canada equal to france and quebec alone would support a population equal to france and in manitoba equal to the british isles and in Saskatchewan equal to France, and Alberta equal to Germany, and British Columbia equal to Germany, ignoring Yukon, Mackenzie River, Keewatin, and Labrador, taking only those parts of Canada where climate had been tested and lands surveyed, Canada would support 200 million people. The figures are staggering, but they are not half so improbable as the actual facts of what has taken place in the United States. America's population was acquired against hard odds. There were no railroads when the movement to America began. The only ocean goers were sailboats of slow progress and great discomfort. In Europe was profound ignorance regarding America. Today all is changed. Canada begins where the United States left off. The whole world is gridironed with railroads. Fast Atlantic liners offer greater comfort to the immigrant than he has known at home. Ignorance of America has given place to almost romantic glamour. Just when the freelands of the United States are exhausted and the government is putting up bars to keep out immigrants, Canada is in a position to open her doors wide. Less than a fortieth of the entire West is inhabited. Of the great clay belt of northern Ontario, only a patch of the southern edge is populated. The same may be said of the great forest belt of Quebec. 
These facts are the magnet that will attract the immigrants to Canada. The United States wants no more immigrants. And the movement to Canada has begun. To her shores are thronging the hosts of the old world's dispossessed, in multitudes greater than any army that ever marched to conquest under Napoleon. When the history of America comes to be written in a hundred years, it will not be the record of a slaughter field with contending nations battling for mastery or generals wading to glory knee-deep in blood. It will be an account of the most wonderful race movement, the most wonderful experiment in democracy the world has known. The people thronging to Canada for homes who are to be her nation builders are people crowded out of their homelands who haven't had room for the shoulder swing manhood and womanhood needed to carve out honorable careers. Looking at them in the streets of London or Glasgow or Dublin or Berlin, these immigrants, as the French call their royalists, whose, whom revolution drove from home, I think the word immigre is a truer description of the newcomer to Canada than the word immigrant. They are poor. They are desperately poor, so poor that a month's illness or shutdown of the factory may push them from poverty to the abyss. They are thrifty, but they can neither earn nor save enough to feel absolutely sure the hollow-eyed specter of want may not seize them by the throat. They are willing to work, so eager to work that the docks and the factory gates they trample and jostle one another for the chance to work. There are the underpinnings, the underprops of an old system. These immigrants, by which the masses were expected to toil for the benefit of the classes. It's all the average man or woman is good for, says the old order. Just a day's wage representing bodily needs. Wait, says the new order. Give him room. Give him an opportunity. Give him a full stomach to pump blood to his muscles and life to his brain. Wait and see. If he fails, then let him drop to the bottom of the social pit without stop of poorhouse or help. A penniless immigrant boy arrives in New York. First he peddles peanuts. Then he trades in a half-husker way whatever comes to hand and earns profits. Presently, he becomes a fur trader and vests his savings in real estate. Before that man dies, he has a monthly income equal to the yearly income of European kings. That man's name was John Jacob Astor. Or a young Scotch boy comes out on a sailing vessel to Canada. For a score of years, he is an obscure clerk at a distant trading post in Labrador, comes out of the wilds to take a higher position as land commissioner. Presently, he is backing railroad ventures of tremendous cost and tremendous risk. Within 30 years from the time he came out of the wild penniless, the man possesses a fortune equal to the national income of European kingdoms. The man's name is Nord Strathcona. Or a hard-working coal miner immigrates to Canada. The man has brains as well as hands. Other coal miners emigrate at the same time, but this man is keen as a razor in foresight and care. From coal miner, he becomes a coal manager. From manager, operator to operator, owner, 
and dyes worth a fortune that the barons of the mill ages would have drenched their countries in blood to win the man's name is james dunsmuir or is it a boy clerking in a department store he immigrates when he goes back to england it is to marry a lady-in-waiting to the queen he is now known as lord mount stephen what was the secret of the success ability in the first place but in the second opportunity opportunity and room for shoulder swing to show what a man can do when keen ability and tireless energy have untrammeled freedom to do the best examples of the immigrant's success can be multiplied it is more than a mere material excess it is eternal proof that given a fair chance and a square deal and shoulder swing the boy penniless can run the race and outstrip the boy born to power have you then no menial classes in canada asked a member of the old order no i'm thankful to say said i then who does the work the workers but what's the difference just this your menial of the old country is a child of a menial whose father before him was a menial whose ancestors were in servile positions to other people back as far as you like to go to the time when men were serfs wearing an iron collar with a brand of the lord who owned them with us no stigma is attached to work your menial expects to be a menial all his life with our worker just as sure as the sun rises and sets if he continues to work and is no fool he will rise to earn a competency to improve himself to own his own labor to own his own house to hire the labor of other men who are beginners as he once was himself then you have no social classes lots the ups who have succeeded and the half ups halfway ups who are succeeding and the beginners who are going to succeed and the downs who never try and as success doesn't necessarily mean money but doing the best at whatever one tries you can see that the ups and the halfway ups and the beginners and the downs have each their own classes of special workers that she answered is not democracy it is a revolution she was thinking of the old world hard and fast divisions of society into royalty aristocracy commons peasantry it is not a revolution i explained it is a rebirth when you send your immigrant out to us he is a man made over man but it is not given to all immigrants to become great capitalists or great leaders some who have the opportunity have not the ability and the majority who would not for all the rewards that greatness offers choose careers that entail long years of nerve-wracking unflagging labor but on a minor scale the same process of making over takes place one case will illustrate some years before immigration to canada had been become general two or three hundred Icelanders were landed in Winnipeg destitute. From some reason, 
which i have forgotten probably the quarantine of an immigrant the icelanders could not be housed in the government immigration hall they are absolutely without money household goods property of any sort except clothing and that was scant the men having but one suit of the poorest clothes the wom women thin homespun dresses so worn one could see many of them had no underwear the people represented the very dregs of poverty withdrawing to the vacant lots in the west end of winnipeg at that time a mere town the newcomers slept for the first nights herded into the rooms of an icelander opulent enough to have rented a house those who could not gain admittance to the house slept under the high board sidewalks then a feature of the new town i remember as a child watching them sit on the high sidewalk till it was dark then roll under fortunately it was summer but it was useless for people in this condition to go bare in the prairie farm to make land yield you must have had a house and barns and stock and implements and i doubt these people had much as a jackknife i remember how two or three of the older women used to sit crying each night in despair till they disappeared in the crowded house fourteen or twenty of them to a room within a week the men were all at work sawing wood from door to door at a dollar and a half a cord the women out by the day washing at a dollar a day within a month they had earned enough to buy lumber and tar paper tar papered shanties went up like mushrooms on the vacant lots before winter each family had bought a cow and chickens i shall not betray confidence by telling where the cow and chickens slept these immigrants were not desirable neighbors other people moved hastily away from the region such a condition would not be tolerated now where there are spacious immigration halls and sanitary inspectors to see that cows and people do not house under the same roof what with work and peddling milk by spring the people were able to move out on the free prairie farms today these icelanders own farms clear of debt own stock that would be considered the possession of a capitalist in iceland and have money in the savings banks their sons and daughters have had university educations and have entered every avenue of life farming trading practicing medicine actually teaching english in english schools some are members of parliament it was a hard beginning but it was a rebirth to a new life they are now among the nation builders of the west but it would be a mistake to conclude that canada's nation builders consist entirely of poor people the race movement has not been a leaderless mob princes nobles adventurers soldiers of fortune were the pathfinders who blazed the trail to canada goal glory pure and simple was the aim that lured the first comers across trackless seas adventurous young aristocrats members of the old order led the first nation builders to america and all unconscious of destiny laid the foundations of the new order the story of their adventures and work in is the history of canada it is a new experience in the world's history the race movement that has built up the united states and is now building up canada our great race movement have been tearing down of high places the upward scramble of one class on the backs of the deposed class 
Instead of leveling down, Canada's nation building is leveling up. This, then, is the empire, the size of all the nations in Europe, bigger than Napoleon's wildest dreams of conquest, to which Canada has awakened. End of section zero. Recording by Linda Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C.